Well, we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to dig in and find out the best mental health service that no one knows about, as well as what's at the root of the toxic cultures sometimes we experience in, in corporate life, and some great tips to, uh, to deal with those particular issues. So stick with us. Beyond Wellbeing leading a thriving, generative, and conscious workplace culture with Daryl Brown and Lena Mberku. So in today's episode, we have the pleasure of welcoming Jenny George. Uh, Jenny was uh, really impressive at the Wellness Festival. She uh, uh, presented so many different um, aspects of well-being. from an ethics uh, lens, but also from a, a health perspective and mental health perspective in particular, because she's the CEO of Converge International, which is an employee assistance program. So Daryl, would you have a first question for Jenny? <laughs> well, Jenny, again, it's, um, I love your energy, even, even as we've, we've started before. Tell us about one of those things, one of the, one of the key things that, that you're really, um, I don't know, energised about when we start talking about um, EAP programs or, or that in um, business and organisations today. Yeah, thanks, Daryl. I joined the industry five years ago and had been in a completely different place before that. So one of the things I was so impressed about about EAP programs was they are just a fantastic resource. And every time I get customer feedback or I, I get a letter from someone who's used um, the service, I'm constantly amazed by how pivotal, pivotal and really important they can be in the lives of the people that we come in contact with, which is obviously amazing for me. What really then surprises me is how few people know they've got one. So I talk to people all the time who I know work for one of our customers. And I say, you know, have you heard about the EAP program? You can always call us. And they go, oh, I I didn't even know. What is EAP? And it's amazing. I I say it's the best mental health service in Australia that no one knows about. (laughs) Because so many Australians, you know, 10 million working Australians have access to it through their employers and all of their immediate family do as well, which means that practically every Australian is likely to have access to free mental health services. And yet I just don't get any sense that the broader population of Australia even know about that. And of course, from an HR manager point of view, this then is a really interesting question of what is this disconnect that's going on? Because I know some HR managers try really hard to get the word out because they know that these programs are really great. They're fantastic for productivity, Where's the cut through um, able to come from and what's missing in here? And that's, to me, a fascinating question. And, you know, you, of course, um, have got experience in the HR field. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that as well. Where do you think we're missing the cut through on this? Mm. What comes across most often is that it's seen as too bureaucratic. Mm. It's seen as just um, a very a very safe way to provide assistance or advice, like that, that there's no real sense of connection or involvement. It's try. it feels a little bit cold. Mm. And, um, and also there is the stigma or the fear of other people finding out about um, yes. uh, what somebody's going through. And something else that has emerged as well is that if people are 
going to uh, make a call or see a EAP counselor during work hours, it's very hard for them to actually go back to work mm. afterwards like because mm. they're still emotionally shaken sometimes mm. and, and it makes it harder. So they, yeah. they'd rather have um, a personal counselor that they see outside of work and they mm. feel a little bit closer on more so may, maybe it's also getting the word out that these appointments are available on the weekends and evenings and all sorts of things mm. as well just like a, a personal um, counselor because of course the psychologists and counselors that are used through eap are exactly the same person that you're going to call and spend your own money on actually like mm. the networks of people that eap programs use are the person that you're going to get the referral to the GP for. So, you know, it's really interesting, this perception, um, when really it's a free service, seeing exactly the same person that you would see and pay your own money for. So it's really interesting, um, that perception. I think the other thing you mentioned that's so fascinating is this idea that perhaps it's not fully confidential and maybe, you know, my workplace might find out about it. I know every EAP I'm aware of is super, super worried about privacy and really, really focused on keeping all of those um, details incredibly confidential. And sometimes we get leaned on actually by organisations who want to know, you know, more details about people. And we always push back and say, we you know, this is our job. This is our our brand. We have to protect that. And we're, we're really super careful about it. But it is interesting that some employees are worried. Can I just make an observation? Oh. The only times I've really seen a lot of employees be worried about the confidentiality is when the whole culture of the organization that they're in is toxic. And it's actually for me now a red flag. If employees are worried about the confidentiality, it makes me go, ah, this is a really toxic organisation and a toxic culture because they seem to go hand in hand. Places where the culture is much more respectful and people, you know, are um, used to a a really great working environment, they're usually not at all. It doesn't even cross their mind that confidentiality is going to be a problem. They just assume it it will be confidential and so on. It's really interesting that the, the two things go hand in hand in my observation. Mm. And, yeah. I, and I think that would be a thing, again, as we, as we speak about workplace cultures, there is that whole sense of, of working out whether, whether there's per, permission to be not okay and, yeah. and also whether that is something that's talked about generally. Like so in, in so many and I suppose over so many years and, and even decades, as we look back at corporate culture, you just mm. didn't bring your problems. You, you didn't bring your emotional baggage into the workplace, you know. So there's that kind of thing now. Well, of 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 actually, how do we communicate across our organisations that it's actually okay not to be okay, and mm. then that that there's a whole bunch of things you can do once you acknowledge that. That's right. And of course, the the interesting misnomer about all of this is it it wasn't the case in the past that we didn't bring the emotional baggage in. It's just that no one talked about what the emotional baggage was. It's been so interesting for me personally during the pandemic, because um, as I've been locked down in Melbourne, the, you know, the thing that happens for me, for some people, it's depression. For my daughter, who's nine years old, she gets really whiny, totally understandable. For me, I get irritable. And so, you know, that um, what's going on for me emotionally 
is showing up in the workplace, but it's showing up in me being super task oriented, a little bit irritable and short with people. And of, of course I need to catch myself on that. But the interesting thing is that acknowledging that there's a, a mental health um, thing going on behind that um, is really helpful, but it wasn't like um, not acknowledging in the past changed the reality, which is that behaviors showed up they were happening in the workplace. They were affecting work. It was the, the emotional baggage was in fact being manifest on the job. We just didn't do anything about it because we never acknowledged what was actually at the root of it. And that's why I think it's so helpful. This are you okay is not just about kind of supporting people in you know, their personal distress. It's actually about workplaces starting to get ahead of some of the things that do show up in the workplace that do affect productivity, that do affect people and teams, but doing it in a really compassionate and respectful way that's going to mean that people feel like they've got the space to actually make the changes they need to make, um, feel supported in doing that, and for everyone to get to a better place in the end. Hmm. And I suppose there's a challenge though as well, isn't it? When you say, I like um, mental health, in, in many cultures, workplace or otherwise, um, one would not like to suggest that there was anything wrong. Like there's a stigma attached to that as well, mm. isn't there? So I'm not quite sure how how we kind of move past that as well. Like what does it actually take to be able to go, yeah, no, I'm not that bad. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't actually really need to talk. I can manage. I'll get through it. You know, that kind mm. of approach. So how do we move past that, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the destigmatization conversation, the, the one that says um, poor mental health or some issues that people will have will happen to almost everyone throughout at some point in their life. That's just the reality. I think that that's now much better understood. And I think that that's the, the really good work of those um, government funded organisations that are about awareness raising like Beyond Blue and others, mm. who've really done a great job using ambassadors, normalising, showing this is completely part of life. No one's going to escape it. I mean, apart from anything else, every single one of us will experience significant grief in our life. And we will have a period of time where we are struggling with just how to get up in the morning and, and function. And that's, you know, every single one of us will do that. And every single one of us will need to figure out how to manage through that and manage ourselves through that. So I think the destigmatization conversation has really come a long way. I think where perhaps um, there's still a bit of room to go is now that it's destigmatized, what do I do with that? You know, when do I pick up the phone? it's okay to not, not to be okay, that's great, but how much of it do I cope with myself? How much do I get professional help with? And at what stages do I do that? I think that's perhaps where we're moving a little bit more now, which of course is not to say there's still not some work to do because there's still some environments where, you know, there's a lot of emphasis placed on being staunch and kind of um, pretending that nothing's wrong. But I think that's, in, that's not so much the case. That really is increasingly, um, becoming well understood through the community that this is something everyone will experience at some point. You mentioned earlier that um, when people are fearful of uh, other people finding out about uh, them going to see a counselor, 
it's also a sign that the culture is toxic, that there's this fear of gossip mm -hmm. and the fear of judgment, etc. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about this uh, toxic culture. We, we actually spent an episode on that, uh, Daryl and I, um, yes. before, but I, I would love to, to hear your take because I know it's hard to measure whether your culture is toxic and it's hard to mm -hmm. acknowledge it or to, uh, to want to look at it. So I, I'd be really curious to hear more about that. Yes, well, it is a fascinating topic and one um, that I know is increasingly becoming um, very visible in organisations because as boards and senior execs are now legally held responsible for the culture of their organisation, um, mm -hmm. this is raising the awareness and the um, level of scrutiny about culture immensely and boards are now obviously wanting to know how can we measure our culture, how can we know everything's okay we don't want to go to jail, basically, you know, and just as I think physical safety has come such an enormous way in the last 30 years from, uh, you know, let's try not to have accidents to let's be absolutely certain that our safety systems and our safety culture is right so that we're, you know, pushing down workplace accidents to zero. That's very much where we are now. Um, I think that same journey is beginning with psychological safety, but I think that people have much less idea about what it means because obviously in physical injuries, someone's got a broken leg or they haven't, um, they've you know fallen off a roof or they haven't, you can start to actually see physical injuries are not 100%, not, not but they're much easier to pinpoint. Um, and it's then much easier to pinpoint hazards with psychological safety, it's much more difficult. So what does a toxic culture look like and what creates it? Um, how do we measure that? Are much more complex questions. And we're just starting to really get an idea about how to measure those. There's some interesting work being done by Professor Maureen Dollard at the University of South Australia um, in conjunction with a whole, really there's a whole stream of work worldwide around um, psychological safety climates is the, um, mm. is the area of work. And there's some questions that they ask um, about a psychologically safe environment. And a lot of it is to do with things like, is it safe to admit mistakes without fear of punishment? Um, do mm. I feel like um, I've got enough autonomy and I'm going to be listened to if I raise a concern? Um, do I feel that uh, the management is taking um, psychological well-being seriously? And if something happens, if bullying, you know, is um, kind of uh, is alerted, will action be taken? And will I actually see something happen? And will it result in change in my workplace? Those are the kinds of questions in that psycho psychological safety climate. And we're starting to increasingly be able to measure that, but it's still really early days. And of course, the next piece is then, what if we do find that our culture is not everything we want it to be? What do we do about it? Yeah. Um, and this is really fascinating. And, and we know that there's some things that are levers. And of course, all of those questions suggest something, you know, are management taking complaints seriously? Are they taking action on them? Um, are mistakes punished or are they used as a learning opportunity? You know, all of these things, um, the, the questions themselves kind of give you clues about some of the actions mm -hmm. that you can take in response. Um, but I think the other unspoken piece within um, toxic cultures is that there are certain personalities, and I'll call them high-conflict personalities, um, but there are certain people who seem to attract conflict and who seem to create it to a certain extent. Um, 
And even if they move around different parts of the organization, you can kind of see conflict following them. And there seems to be a bit of a pattern. Mm -hmm. And there's some work that at Converge we've done around what we're calling these high conflict personalities, because um, often when we're brought into a team and asked, look, can you uncover what's going on with conflict in this team? It's an uncanny number of these very serious long-term kind of gridlocked um, conflict situations that have these quite specific high conflict personalities that seem to be involved um, really a lot of the time. Um, and there's, there's some characteristics of people in this category. If you want to go to the absolute extreme, um, Donald Trump is a, an example of a narcissistic personality who pretty much creates conflict everywhere he goes. Now, that's a way extreme. There's very few people who are that extreme. <laughs> but but there, there are certain, but you know, look, if you want to see, you know, the extreme actually on camera at any time, there's just an amazing <laughs> amount you can learn from the kinds of things that he does. But there are characteristics of people who are high conflict. And sometimes it's not immediately obvious, but um, often, you know, they have very black and white thinking. Everyone's either an angel or a demon. Um, you know, no one's kind of an area, they can't see shades of gray very easily. And of course that cause, causes conflict because it means that someone's either absolutely on their side or they're the devil incarnate and everything they do is wrong. And you can see how this creates friction and conflict in teams. And there's lots of other characteristics as well. There's almost always a target of blame. So because people who are these high conflict personalities find it difficult to um, take ownership for things themselves or see that they've got responsibility for things, they're often quite low empathy. Um, they locate everything bad that happens outside of themselves. And so everything else is always something that someone else has done to them. Again, Donald Trump's a really interesting example of this. Um, actually, you, you have a look at anything, it's, there's always someone to blame for whatever bad has happened. Um, and those targets of blame, that kind of pattern is something that's very visible within organisations of people who have this kind of pattern of personality. It's one of the things that I think HR managers um, it could really repay them spending a little bit more time coming to understand because it's probably about 5% of people are somewhere on a continuum in, in that sort of direction, mm. but they cause something like 60 to 65% of all of the conflict within an organization. So if you can manage to not hire them in the first place, <laughs> if you can manage to not promote them to team leader, because they really, really start becoming more and more problematic as they rise through a hierarchy and have more influence, um, and if there's some really specific ways of managing them that work versus other ways of managing that don't work. Um, and so there's, there's some really great stuff that I think HR managers can do. And that can immediately improve the culture and can help with a toxic culture that's not about leadership and any of those things about the psychological safety climate. All of that might be great. The whole organization might be great, but this team seems locked in conflict. What's going on there? Why is it so toxic? It may be one of these kind of toxic or high conflict personalities that might be at the root of that. <laughs> that's um, Yeah, that's incredible. So there's almost like a warning tale, isn't it? What you're setting up is like, mm. Like you'll spot yourself if you're in a toxic culture, but um, like before you get to one, just <laughs> here are a few flags to look out for. That's right. And I've probably worked or not always worked with, but seen, been alongside maybe five people in my career who are pretty, were pretty strongly, you know, in this kind of camp. 
the the warning sign for me is when you feel constantly confused so if as a manager, you kind of keep going, I, I don't really under, I can't put my finger on it. I don't understand what's going on. Everything keeps swirling around and changing and I feel confused. I've come to recognize that as a really big red flag that there might be something going on here, particularly with a high conflict personality. Mm. Mm. So, um, so what's the, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of listening to this and, and then thinking, well, what's the fix? How do you how do you step into that? Does it actually mean that we try and uh, grow the person? Uh, it doesn't sound like that's actually something that's going to work, uh, especially in, if we talk about in the ter- in the um, the time frames that we tend to work in. You know. <laughs> yeah. So the, there is a, a reason why there it's personalities. It's really quite deep seated, and it's almost certain that you, as a manager, will not be able to make any change to that person's fundamental way of working and behaviour. But you can do a lot to manage them effectively. So there are some really, really great techniques that will make sure that they're productive and that the conflict is actually kept to a reasonable level. And the, the basics are actually. Um, having great boundaries. So it's very interesting. It's almost the opposite to the way that you deal with someone who's going through a a mental health challenge. Mm -hmm. So with the mental health challenge, it's all about support and compassion and really doing everything that you can and flexibility and giving every, all the space and the time in the world, high conflict personality, absolute opposite. Um, It's about very firm boundaries and keeping to them without fail. Um, because boundaries are really, really helpful in this situation that can really contain what can otherwise become behaviours that get more and more extreme and conflict that gets out of hand. And the other thing, just from a communication point of view, is um, this acronym BIFF, BIF, Brief, Informative, Friendly and Fair. Um, one of the things that I've found when I've communicated sometimes in the past um, is that uh, a person who has this kind of um, high conflict personality will often go round and round in circles, particularly about the past and particularly about people who are to blame for things. Um, it, you need to cut through that, otherwise it will take all, up all of your time and you'll get nowhere. And the, the really great thing is be brief, be informative, make sure there's facts that anchor what's going on, be friendly, always maintain friendly kind of, um, and be fair. And, and just always keeping that in mind in those communications, it's remarkable um, how effective that is. And the final thing is always future focused, never, never focused on the past, kind of essentially every day is a completely fresh, clean sheet of paper. Um, and you, it's always about what's the behavior I'm looking for in the future? You know, what am I, how am I gonna reward that behavior? Here's the boundaries, stay within them and we'll be happy. And actually that works. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, they, those are incredible um, tips or nuggets that uh, will help any HR team, I'm sure, or, or any leadership team. That's brilliant. I was just wondering while you are on the soapbox, if you had uh, <laughs> other things that you'd like to share with HR, let you think that uh, some knowledge that is actually not necessarily as widespread as you'd like it to be, and that could actually very, be very helpful in organisations. Um, I think as far as soapboxes are concerned, I've probably, I probably, you know, had my uh, my main little personal um, soapbox moments. So, so that's great. Um, I think, I think in terms of uh, HR, one of the things that I'm aware of as uh, a CEO, um, so in an executive role, is that 
the time that uh, HR and executives spend both on selecting the right people and then on uh, mentoring and training them is just so uh, well returned. And so one of the interesting things that I've found, and so this is just a personal anecdote really, but one of the things I've found personally that um, everyone who's ever hired by Converge um, is surprised by is how much time we take about recruitment. And so um, people say, you know, I've spent much more time in this recruitment process than I ever have before, but we do it because cultural fit's really important and you can't discover cultural fit in an hour. You just can't do it. It needs to be a process of both um, parties getting to know each other and really feeling a level of comfort and you can't rush that. I think the other thing is with um, mentoring and training and again people are surprised we had an emerging leaders program for a week with our 20 you know young emerging leaders um, and I went to the whole week and basically a whole bunch of people were astonished that a CEO I would set aside a week and I was like if I can't spend a week of my year inputting into our brightest and best young talent. What am I doing with my time? There's nothing more important than that. And so I think, you know, for HR, I suppose to feel permission and hopefully to get permission from the leadership and their executive to spend the time and invest the time they need in bringing the right people on board and then invest and spend the time they need on developing training their, their best and brightest um, hopes for the future. I think both feel permission as HR to do it, but also feel permission to ask that kind of commitment of the top execs. Mm. That's their job and you should not feel like you are begging, borrowing or pleading. Um, you should feel completely justified in going and asking for their time and input on those things. Of course, if they say no, well, you can't control that. But I think that you should feel right about at least asking if they'll be involved to that extent. There is um, something else you were talking about a little bit before, moving from that mental health thing. So we're going back to the EAP stuff perhaps and, and a little bit on that, but moving from mental health to mental fitness and the way that, you know, for us uh, here at, you know, beyond well-being, it's actually, that's kind of the core of what it's about in some ways, yes. not just being okay when you turn up to work, mm. but how can we promote and how can we get beyond that and move into a place where we're actually high, highly functioning together as a team? You got some thoughts on that? I certainly do. Yes. Uh, look, one of the things that I'm passionate about is that for people who are actually fine, they're doing really well, they've got a happy life, you know, things are fine. Are there still ways that they can actually go from fine to amazing? You know, is there a, a move that people can make for, yeah, I'm from I'm coping to I'm really enjoying life. How can we we shift that? And that's where mental fitness comes in because this is the things that we have control of that we can build into our lives that build well-being. And it's been so interesting for me through lockdown and pandemic, um, not so much to notice the irritability that comes, <laughs> which is part of it, but actually to notice how all of those habits which have been disrupted have actually been invisibly part of the fabric of my life and have gone into making up what makes me feel well. It's really helped to confirm for me what I need. And so, I, for, for instance, one of the things, I, I'm a singer, I need to sing with other people. 
I, I do it at home and I sing, you know, with my husband playing the piano and that's lovely, but I'm a choral singer and I need to sing in choirs and I haven't sung all year and I probably can't sing for another year and it's killing me. And even noticing that makes me think, okay, that was really important for my mental health. And the model of mental fitness tells me why. It's a social interaction, but it's also creative activity, intense focus, a flow. I'm lost in the moment. It's, it's for me like meditation in that sense and sort of a mindfulness exercise. It's intensely about my senses, listening in, in particular, um, and being incredibly focused on hearing other people and fitting in with them. It's a team activity. There's so much going on there that, you know, when I think about a mental fitness model, I can see why it works. And I've really become conscious of it in having this enforced period where it's not been able to happen. Very good. What, what's coming up for you? Have you got some um, some big things uh, or any, anything that, any projects that you've got or, or um, anything that you'd like to share about what's what's happening on the, on the way forward? Sure. Well, the, our biggest projects at the moment are around mental fitness. So we've um, been developing a mental fitness app that helps to measure for an individual where their mental fitness is at. And I've been um, beta testing it for the last couple of months. So through this whole period, I've been watching my well-being go up and down. I've been watching my mental fitness go up and down. And um, the, the components of that are things from as varied as what I'm eating, which has a, a big effect on mental fitness, all the way through to, as I said, those kind of creative activities, um, voluntary activities and volunteering is another big part of it and connection to nature which we also know is so important for our spiritual well-being which is a part of that whole um, mental fitness picture and so all of those things um, we've got this really interesting app coming out that measures that um, it allows people to track it over time and most importantly gives them control over what activities can actually help me improve this and can get me to a better place with my mental fitness so I'm so excited about that as I said we're beta testing it I think it's going to show up on the app store this week it's wow. only going to be available to just a, a small group of pilot customers initially but we're very excited about where that might go. I'm curious about your vision for what's possible in terms of well-being in Australia or in the world. Like, if there were no constraints, what what is it that you would like to see? Interestingly, the answer to that is really similar to the question about what is a lifestyle that gives you the longest longevity so i don't know if you're aware of the the research about blue zones in the world and oh, yes, certain yes. communities around the place who have this extraordinary longevity um actually the the mental fitness picture and mental well-being is really really related to exactly the same things that lead to long life they're they're two sides of the same coin actually mm -hmm. so the exact same things that give those communities longevity and that's meaning and purpose one of the things that we know is that if right into your 90s you still there's a reason for getting up in the morning you feel like your life has purpose you're here doing something important in the world however you constructed that it might not be paid work of course but if there's a reason why you're around because you're playing with your grandchildren because you're um you know volunteering at your local op shop whatever it is um that meaning and purpose is incredibly important and of course it's exactly the same thing that leads to mental well-being so the kinds of things i think that governments um can do to support that are exactly those kinds of things that those blue zone 
communities tell us are important. It's really important to have meaning and purpose. And for most blue zones, that's actually a religious or a spiritual commitment. That's important part. Mm -hmm. um, we know that uh, great exercise, diet, you know, sleep, nutrition, that's all really important. We know that community and um, social interactions are incredibly important. Um, and then we know that uh, a positive mindset and uh, a growth mindset are really important. I think it's, uh, I'm fascinated by how much my daughter's school, so she's a nine-year-old, are already implementing that in the curriculum. And I, I saw the other day that just about every one of those factors, they've specifically been teaching the kids about. So I think there's some really interesting stuff going on and I'm gonna be fascinated to see in 10 or 20 years time, how that pays dividends in the future. It's a big deal. Well, thank you very much um, for for having a chat to us, and um, that's been awesome. If people want to get in touch with you or to yes. find out what you've been doing, what's the best way they can do that? Yes, Converge International is my company, and we've got a LinkedIn page, and we um, post things on there. It's a great way to get in touch with us, uh, and of course, check out our website. And we're always happy to uh, to talk in more detail with anyone. You've been listening to Beyond Wellbeing with Daryl Brown and Lena Mberku. Well, if you want to get in touch with uh, Jenny and her organisation at Converge International, that's exactly where you head to, convergeinternational.com.au. Uh, and no doubt, as you search on LinkedIn, you'll find her as well. And uh, if you want to get in touch with Lena or I, you know where we are, LinkedIn for Lena at Lena Mberku. And uh, I'm on there as well. Um, and our website's uh, macroleaders.com.au for Lena and Daryl Brown. You can catch me through upsidedownleader.com. Look forward to having a chat again next week.